Good morning, Grace City, and a very special welcome to all of our guests joining us here today from downtown Denver, where, Lord willing, we will be back together in person within the next handful of weeks as we continue to pray and to plan and get this space ready for us to come back and worship and enjoy Jesus and live on mission for Jesus together. My name is Matt Hand, pastor at Grace City Church here in downtown Denver. We're glad that you're here for a brand new series that we're starting this morning in the book of Colossians. A very short letter was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a small church um, that was new to living the Christian faith and was trying to figure some different things out. I'm excited to jump in here with you this morning if you want to be turning there to the book of Colossians. Have you ever had just the nagging sense that God is perpetually disappointed with you? Like you look at your life and you say, you know, I, I know that I am not good enough for God and I feel like I will never be good enough. And maybe you would even say something like this, like I know God loves me because God is love and he's kind and he's gracious and all that, but I don't feel like God likes me. I don't feel like God enjoys me. I don't feel like God is happy with me. And that's just a perpetual simmering kind of like nauseating feeling in your life of like, yeah, I have this relationship with God, but it's not nearly as good as it could be because I feel like he's just never pleased with me. And maybe you had a parent like this, maybe a dad or a mom or a teacher or a boss, or some of you, unfortunately, maybe even a spouse, that you feel like no matter what I do to try to please this person, they're just not able to be pleased. Like they're always going to find something wrong with what I do. And again, maybe if it was a parent or a spouse, like, yeah, does that person love me? I guess, whatever that, they're committed to our marriage, but do they enjoy me? Do they take pleasure in me? No. And many of you feel this way about God. And interestingly enough, this is where Paul starts this letter by giving you this one big idea that that pleasing God is less about what you and I do for God. And it actually has a lot more to do with us simply walking in the fullness of everything that he has already done for us in Jesus Christ. So let me introduce this book, Colossians. So there's this small town in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, about 80 miles inland from Ephesus near Heropolis, near Laodicea. And it truly was, by the time that this letter's written, a fairly small town. We would call it today like a flyover town. You know, it's not a big city. And actually, Paul, as he's writing this letter, has just heard about this church that a friend and a partner in ministry, a man named Epaphras, had gone there and had preached the gospel, and a church has started to take root and grow up. And Paul's excited because he's hearing this tension of, you know, the church loves God and they believe in Jesus and they're trying to do the Christian faith thing, but they've got some problems. They've got some questions. And just with his pastoral heart, he's going to address a number of those questions in his letter and just say, let me, let me help you live the Christian life. And simultaneously, let me celebrate this, this partnership that we have in the gospel and the work that Jesus is doing in your midst. Okay. So as we come into this book, I want to just kind of show you that the theme, the overarching theme of this book is basically the preeminence and the, the all-satisfying nature 
of Jesus Christ. The, the theme, the, the title that I'm going to give to this whole series is Complete in Christ. Because Paul's going to be saying to these Christians, you don't need Jesus plus. You don't need Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus a cult, Jesus plus some special esoteric knowledge of something. You just need Jesus Christ with all that he has to offer you in terms of the way he can transform and heal and bless your life to so follow him. Now, he starts off the way you would start a standard letter at this time. He basically introduces himself, introduces the audience. There's a bit of a salutation. So I invite you to join me here in reading together the first 14 verses, which is just, again, a standard greeting followed by a prayer that Paul is saying, this is what I'm praying for you, okay? Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm coming right back to this theme where Paul is saying in these introductory verses, friends, you want to please God? You want to have this sense that, that I have favor with God, that God delights in me. And he says, pleasing God, again, is less about what you do for God. And it's much more about just walking in the fullness of what God has already done for you. See, at the heart of this prayer is the purpose. Verse 10, he says, why, why am I praying this for you? What do I ultimately want to see accomplished in your lives as those who are following Jesus he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And I just pause there and I think, what kind of walk, in other words, what kind of lifestyle is worthy of God? You know, how is it that we could possibly know my life, my words, my attitudes, my actions, they are pleasing to God. He delights in them, not every once in a while. But, but like all the time. And we probably picture some kind of long 
list, right? Our performance, all the rules, all the checkboxes. How do I know I'm pleasing my teacher, my parents? Check, 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 check. You go down this whole big checklist. It's like if I could do all that stuff, that would be pleasing to God. And we all say, well, I can't do all that stuff. I certainly can't do it perfectly. I can't do it daily. Um, so I'm right back to this. I guess I just disappoint God. And I don't know what to do about that. But instead of religion, instead of our performance, instead of checklists, Paul shows us four things in this letter. Four P's I'm going to give you, then unpack briefly. He shows you prerequisites to this worthy walk, a picture of the worthy walk, the power of the worthy walk, and then the portion of the worthy walk. I want you to notice, first of all, that he gives you, there are two prerequisites kind of to this worthy walk. What he's going to say is, before you're able to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, before you are able to walk worthy of the Lord, you need two things. Number one, you need knowledge. Look at verse nine. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you since we heard of it, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So question, what, what do you need if you want to walk in a manner that's worthy of of the Lord, or, or what do you need in order to do God's will? Where the, the obvious answer is you need knowledge, right? You need to know what the will of God is in order for you to do it with any kind of consistency. Now, again, some of you may have had like an unreasonable parent or teacher or boss or something like that where they, they have all these expectations of you. And maybe they would even think to themselves, I would be happy with you if you did all these things but then they don't communicate them. And you may have even had this conversation with them or a spouse or a friend saying, like, I can't possibly read your mind, okay? I need you to communicate what those expectations are. That's where Paul begins. He says, if you want to please God, you need to know what God is like. You need to know what God expects. You need to know what God has done for you. You know, this is true of all of life. If you were playing a new sport and it were just like football, American football, which is literally new to you, and you started with like, well, it's called football, so I guess I can't touch it with my hands, um, but, but what do I do? And you're trying to dribble it around the field and get it across the line or something, or you're trying to dribble around the field and, and kick it to a friend, a teammate, and have them kick it through those upright things, you know, and, and you think that this is how we score. Well, obviously you would never score because that's not the way the sport of American football works. You need to know. So, by the way, Paul is combating early forms of what's later going to be called Gnosticism. Um, gnosis is the, the Greek word for, like, knowledge. And they had this idea that there was some kind of, like, super spiritual, esoteric, kind of secret knowledge. It was a cult, basically. And it's like, if you want to know God, you got to get in on the secret knowledge. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? And he starts off his letter really with the word epigenosis of, like, there's this abundant knowledge, not that's secretive, not that's hidden from you, not that there's like es esoteric and spooky and like, ooh, once you get to this certain level of Christianity, then you can figure this stuff out, what it's really about. No, he's like, my prayer for every single one of you is that you may know to the full all about God and his will for you, because that's a prerequisite to then walking in a way that's worthy of him. But then backing up a few verses, we see a second prerequisite. Not only do we need knowledge, but we also need faith. We need to trust God. 
See, the Bible says even the devils have knowledge of God. Like they know him better than we do. Okay? They, they know his will. They just don't believe in him. They don't trust in him. They don't want to hope in him. They don't, they don't want to please him. So actually the first thing in verse three that Paul is thanking God for is he's like, God, I just thank you that this group of people has been led to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard of your faith in Jesus. And what were they hearing that they were believing? Well, verse five, he calls it the word of truth, the gospel. Verse six, he calls it the grace of God in truth. This word gospel just literally means good news. And Paul is saying here, it's good news in part because it's true news. Okay? And people today still refer to Christianity as like, oh, it's a modern day fairy tale. But it's not. It is a true story. It's a historic story that this man, like God, broke in as Jesus Christ in real space-time history. It's good news because it's true news. And what do you do when someone brings to you a message of goodness and it happens to be true? You don't work for that. You just simply believe it. You accept it as true. So Paul's saying, you want to please God, church, and you want to know that God delights in you? It starts here with these two prerequisites. Listen to his word, know his word, especially the gospel, and then believe. I mean, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says kind of the opposite. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, implying what? That with faith, you do please God because this is what he's called you to. So that's the prerequisite, knowledge and faith. Then let me give you point two is, is I call it the picture of a worthy walk. And I come back to this core request in verse 10 where Paul is praying, I just want these fellow believers, I just want them to know the will of God and I want them to do it. Okay, not stopping at, oh yeah, I believe in God, faith, you know, I, I believe in God, I, I know all about God. But he's like, now there's a walk. Now there's a lifestyle. And this is my prayer for you. And, and what does that walk look like? Well, he gives us three participles that say it looks like this, this, and this. Okay, so the first of those things, the picture of a worthy walk, starts with bearing fruit in every good work. That's his next participle phrase there in the middle of your text, verse 10. Okay, bearing fruit in every good work. And I want you to know that every single life bears fruit. And basically Jesus comes along and he says, whatever is in your heart, whatever, whatever drives and controls your thoughts, what you love, what you think about, what you prioritize, what you have affection for, that will automatically come spilling out in the fruit of your life. In other words, in the stuff that other people can see, right? And what, what Paul is saying here in this prayer is healthy fruit is the byproduct of a healthy relationship with Christ. He's saying that when you have faith and knowledge of God through Christ, then you can bear healthy fruit. And I love this because Paul isn't sitting here saying, hey, Colossians, let's, let's get serious about the Christian life, okay? Let's, let's obsess over all the good stuff that you should be doing. No, he's using a metaphor, basically, of the gospel's like seed, with its own inherent power, you get it planted in you and it starts bearing fruit. It starts just increasing in knowledge and goodness and good works toward other people. And I love that because it's so different from religion. I mean, you know that religion, I'm talking about any world religion, 
put so much emphasis on the externals, the, the superficialities of your life. Like, do you, do you look right? Are you wearing the right stuff? Are you saying the right lingo? You know, are, are you doing the, the right set of things and avoiding the other wrong set of things? And there's so much emphasis on that. So what does that lead to? It leads to people who are judgmental toward others, hypocritical toward self. It leads to hiding sin. It leads to self-righteousness. It leads to, in a word, fake fruit. Because either what we end up doing in religion is like we go to Hobby Lobby and we buy the 12-pack of the fake plastic fruit and we, we tape it to our lives. Or we get real fruit, but it's not organically produced and we like staple it to our lives and it's there for a moment before it starts to rot and we're like, look at me, look at my fruit. See how I say and do the right things? And Paul's prayer here is so different from that religious, do this, do this, do this, do this. He says, true knowledge partnered with faith in Christ and hope in God automatically produces the kind of lifestyle that is pleasing to God. How do you know that your life delights in God? Because you're knowing him and you're trusting him and you're inviting him to work on the interior of your life and he's bearing his fruit. And I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But that's the idea of bearing fruit in every good work. The second part of this picture then is increasing in the knowledge of God. And his picture here is that, that wisdom, true wisdom is not just seeking out like propositional truth or principles to live by. It's actually the pursuit of a person. It's the pursuit of God himself. So Paul is not saying you pursue the will of God at the expense of pursuing the person of God. Here he's kind of focusing really on the person of God. Like you, you get to know God more and more. And the more that you're knowing his will and, and walking in faith, the more you dwell in intimacy with him and the more you know and the more you know and the more you know. I mean, just imagine a marriage where someone comes to you after a month of marriage or three months, six months, a year, three years, five years, 10 years, and says, hey, tell me something you've discovered about your wife in the past year. And just imagine if you were to say, well, I mean, kind of a, I knew it all. Um, I, I wouldn't have married her if I didn't know everything about her. Like, I haven't discovered anything new. Like, is that the kind of thing that you do, first of all, and then say um, to, to display this pleasing delight in that relationship? No. Part, part of how God delights in us is like, he's like, I'm showing you more of myself. I'm, sh I'm drawing close to you in this crisis point of your life. And I'm revealing something to you there. I'm healing you in a new way so that you know me more intimately. That's part two of this picture. Part three is then giving thanks to the Father. And all Paul's saying is a hallmark of a life that's pleasing to God is simply gratitude. Why? Because gratitude is an expression of the realization that we live by grace. See, if you go through life and you're not grateful to people who have done things for you, God who's done so many things for you, that's more of a claim, probably an unstated claim, that, that you deserved all that. But when you know you're receiving grace, when you know people are being kind to you, that they're giving you what you don't deserve, what you haven't earned, the natural response of redeemed heart is, thank you. I'm grateful for this. Gratitude is an admission of grace. And I want you to see that these three things that he's mentioned here, that's the picture, that they're kind of a cycle, that, that as you're bearing fruit, so you're, you're knowing the will of God, you're abiding in him in faith, 
But then out of that, you're learning like, okay, these are the kinds of things that like my life is producing good fruit instead of bad fruit. And as I produce more fruit, I'm increasing in the knowledge of God because God meets me in that space of patience and kindness and endurance and gentleness and meekness and all of those things. God's meeting me in that space and I'm drawing closer to him. And as I draw closer to him, I see more about him that I'm grateful for. And as I'm more grateful for his work in my life, I now find this strength to do more good, bear more fruit. I'm being strengthened. I'm growing. I'm maturing all the time. And and it's cyclical. And this is what Paul's describing. So this is the life that is pleasing to God. This is what it means to walk worthy of God. And if you're sitting there saying, so that's it. So know God, trust God. Then I can please him by just repeating the cycle over and over again. And and I just go do that. And that's just the Christian faith. No, okay, next point, and this is, this is key, is the power of a worthy walk. Notice he slips in in verse 11, there's a fourth participle, but this one's passive. And what he's praying here for the church, what he's praying for followers of Jesus is, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He's saying, what is the key to your endurance in difficult times? What is the key to patience with difficult people? What is the key to actually experiencing joy in a year like 2020? He says, it is the power of God at work on the interior of your life. Again, the very opposite of religion, that religion so often points you inward, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on, be strong, trust God, do better, try harder. And and Paul's like, no, I'm praying for you that you would experience the supernatural strengthening of God, the power of God at work in your life. And I picture it kind of like this. It's not a perfect analogy, but you ever done a bench press and you're lying on your back and you have this bar, all this weight, and you're bringing it down to your chest and you're thrusting it back up. And let's say you're trying to build endurance. So you're doing these bench presses to the point of exhaustion and There comes a point, you know, maybe it's 10 reps in, 20 reps in, whatever, with the weight that you have, with the burden that you're bearing right then, where you're like, I can't get this back up. I can't even like, I can't even save myself in a way. And that in part is why you work out with a partner, you know, a spotter. And what that spotter is doing is like, as your strength is waning, their power is kind of kicking in in your life and they're doing more of the lifting. Now, I know that's not a perfect analogy, but but God is reminding us through this prayer, you are never on your own in the midst of difficult circumstances. And, And when you're sitting there thinking, God, I want to please you, but I just can't keep going. I'm done. I am at the end of myself. And God says, no, go in faith. And then who really is it that's doing the lifting? It's God, not you. I know God's much more than that. He's not just like a partner standing outside of you. Like, hey, you you do it up to a point and then I'll jump in and help you when you can't do it anymore. Okay, I'm not saying that. that The analogy has its limits. God's also like the energy drink that you drink and it gets down inside you at every cellular level to help you through every moment of every day. God is so much more than that. My point is simply that as he calls on you to walk worthy, 
And that means you got to be working and you got to be taking that next step and then the next step. It's really his power at work in you that's enabling you to do this. And that's why backing up to verses three through five, you notice that Paul is thanking God for the Colossians' faith and love and hope. And that's interesting. He's not commending the Colossians. He's not saying, I see your faith. Way to go. I see how you love other believers. Awesome job. You know, I see your hope in God is ultimately driving and inspiring these other two things. Yes. You know, he's like, I thank God that you have faith and love and hope. And so what is he saying by thanking God? He's saying, I recognize God is ultimately the source of these things in your life. He is empowering you. As he goes on here, talking about the gospel in verse six, in the whole world, this gospel is bearing fruit. Again, because it has inherent power. So friends, don't miss this, that you and I are not able to please God just in and of ourselves. Like, hey, I got this. But with this passive participle where God is basically saying, pray for me to fill you up with my strength, and I will, okay? This is how we please God. And, and religion puts so much pressure on you to please God by being an obeyer of the rules, a checker of boxes, but the gospel gives you another resource, and that is the power of the divine at work in you and through you for his glory, for his joy and for your joy. Now, one more thing, because it gets even better. This last point, I'll have to explain, because I call this the portion of the worthy walk. But here at the end of the prayer, I want you to notice why are we to give thanks to God? Well, verses 12 through 14, he says, because God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, another important distinction, religion, even Gnosticism at this time is saying, how is it that you get into heaven or nirvana or eternal life or some future blessing? How do you do that? Well, you qualify yourself. And religion always says you qualify yourself. Yourself And sometimes even Christianity gets this wrong, where we, we talk about this worthy walk as if it's some great big contest or it's, it's your performance for God. It is, you know, the top few percent of people really get to enjoy God and everybody else just has to live with this simmering, like, I guess God is disappointed with me kind of thing. Not at all. Not at all. This is not about you being good enough, moral enough, intelligent enough, righteous enough, faithful enough, woke enough. This is not about any of that stuff. And if religion is telling you, you qualify yourself by being a top producer, and God's constantly disappointed with the rest of you, but bless you for trying. The gospel says the opposite. Paul says right here, it is God who qualifies you. God qualifies you. He gives you a portion or a share in the inheritance that belongs to to his son, Jesus, okay? How, how do you get an inheritance in everyday life? Well, you get it by being in a family, right? And you got into a family one of two ways. Either you were born into that family or you were adopted into that family. And this obviously brings grace right up to the surface. You did not choose your family. You did not get to you know sit up there wherever there is and be like, uh, I choose the stork delivery there versus there. None of us got to do that. God chose. God chose to adopt us into his family 
out of this other domain, out of this other family, okay? God brings us in. It's God's work. It's God's grace. And if you understand this, this changes the overall posture of your life from fear to faith, from performance to praise, because you're not ever thinking, I don't think I'll ever be good enough. I think I just constantly disappoint God. This Christian life is really hard, and God doesn't delight in me the way he delights in other people. That becomes, I know the Father is pleased with me. I know it. How do I know it? Well, I mean, of course I'm not perfect. Of course I sin. Of course I fall short and fall down. But he's a good father. And he says right here, he forgives my sin. He releases my debt. He actually pays the debt himself. Okay, And to to make the most of the gift that he's given me, he's not going to be like, oh, I purchased your freedom at the cost of Jesus' life, but now I'm just perpetually stewing with disappointment. He goes way beyond that to say, I bring you into my family. I qualify you. I bless you. I give you this inheritance. I give you this joy and this strength. So this is the way we think Christianly about our portion in this worthy walk. By the way, to change this metaphor at the end from darkness to light, just to something very similar, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis uses this picturesque phrase of Narnia where he says it's, it's basically always winter, but it's never Christmas. In other words, it's constantly and bitterly cold, but you never have the joy. You never have the gift giving. Why? Because it's under the power of the white witch, right? Because she is controlling it. And it is dark and it is cold and there is death. And then you've got someone like Edmund who comes in through the wardrobe into a Narnia. And we find out very quickly, there's a bit of selfishness there. There's a a bit of traitor in there, actually, where he's willing to sell out to get a momentary pleasure, right, from the white witch. I will serve the domain of darkness. I will serve the domain of the cold. But then Aslan, who is this lion, this Christ figure, comes in and he does what? He offers his own life for the traitor. He says that there is a debt to be paid and I will pay the debt for you. Are you pleasing me when I'm paying the debt? Is that why I'm paying the debt? It's like I looked at you and I'm like, whoa, Edmund, way to go, buddy. I guess I'll pay your debt. No, Edmund's doing the very opposite. He is displeasing Aslan, but in love, in grace, the lion moves toward the traitor and says, I offer my life in his place, not only to forgive his rebellion, to forgive his sin, but if you've read the book, you know that when Aslan dies and breaks the power of the curse and breaks the power of death, What happens? The darkness becomes light. The cold becomes warmth. Everything sad is just turned on its head and it becomes new and the curse is defeated. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is praying about here where he says, you were in this domain of darkness, but Jesus Christ by his grace has transferred you into an entirely different kingdom. And that's where you are now if you are a follower of Jesus in faith simply receiving his power, his gift. And I love this is saying Jesus is not surveying human history and saying, oh, you're qualified, I choose you. 
But he's actually doing the opposite where he's saying, I choose you and now I will qualify you to receive every good gift and my very pleasure. Okay, so this gospel that Paul and Epaphras are proclaiming, the gospel I'm proclaiming to you this morning is not you walk worthy, get it right. And then God will be happy with you. The gospel, the good news, the truth that God wants you to hear this morning is this. God accepts you and is pleased with you. He delights in you because of the choice and the work and the grace of his son, Jesus. Therefore, you have everything you need to walk a worthy life that is completely pleasing to him. When you fall down, he is not angry, he is not scowling, he's not giving you that parental look that most parents have been known to give, right? He still delights in you because his love is over you, his forgiveness is over you, his grace is over you. And I just want to wrap this up by asking two quick questions. Number one, is this your hope? And if maybe you're not currently a follower of Jesus, but this resonates with you, like I wish I could know that I knew that my life is pleasing to God, that God not only loves me, but he likes me. He delights over me. He enjoys me. Then the idea of going home to him as my hope forever does not scare me. Like, why would I want to go home to that kind of God? And that's how a lot of our culture thinks. But when you see the compassion of the Father and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, you're like, that is my hope that inspires my faith, that inspires my love for other people. That's the first question. And finally, is this your prayer for others? And I'm always struck when I come back to a a, a short letter like Colossians that Paul is just like, here's my prayer for you. Boom. And it's not just like, hey, I heard you had this, this malady, this illness, finances aren't going well, this... By the way, if you have something on your heart, God invites you as a good father, you bring it. And no matter how small, how petty, how silly you think that is, bring it to God because he loves to hear from you and he loves to know, God, I'm desperate for you and I'm dependent on you. Even even with this stuff that, can I pray about this? And he's like, yeah, you can pray about that. But let's go beyond those prayers. That's all I'm saying. Let's go beyond those prayers to be praying for one another the way Paul prays for people. To say, I want you to experience the fulfillment, the fullness, the filling of the power and the grace and the wisdom of God. Is that the way we're praying for our friends? I want you to know, church, that's the way I pray for you. I pray, may God remind you of his grace and love every day. Maybe especially in 2020 where things have gone so wrong for so many of you. I pray that you would be reminded daily, God is gracious. God is good. This is more than I deserve and he loves me. I I pray that he would strengthen you for endurance in hard circumstances, patient with difficult people and joy. Not just that you're gritting your teeth and just barely getting through this season, but you're like, you know what? I'm actually finding joy somehow. I'm finding gladness in this work that God is doing on me, even when, yeah, life kind of stinks right now. I'm praying for you that he would show you more of himself and his will, and I'm praying that you would feel and believe. He really loves you. He really delights in you. You are his pleasure. 
So again, don't just work, 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 work. God, are you pleased with me now? Are you pleased with me now? But, but yield your life, surrender your life and say, Lord, I wanna walk in the fullness of what your son Jesus has done for me. This is what the pleasing life and the worthy walk look like today.